Hello, everybody that is starting to join us here. Uh, we're going to be launching our first installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. So I'm going to give everybody a few minutes to filter in here so that we are all organized in the same place. But just talking a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be discussing how to adapt to virtual care and genetic counseling. Um, I'm your host, Kira Deneen, and it's fantastic to have everybody coming and joining us today. We're really excited to launch this brand new speaker series webinar by uh, Phenotips. They are the sponsor of this new series. And so in the webinar today, we're going to have three sections of this. We're going to start out with a 30-minute interview with my lovely guest, Elizabeth Turner here. And then we're going to be doing a Q&A. So any questions you have during the interview part, just pop them into the chat and we'll get to them at the end of the interview. And then we're gonna end with a networking session so that participants can be mingling with each other and connecting. It's been interesting being in quarantine for many people. So I think it'd be great to connect with other professionals, especially when we've really been uh, more isolated than usual in our field. Um, so definitely feel free to pop your questions in the chat during the interview part. We're gonna be answering those at the end of the interview. And for those that aren't familiar, Phenotips is the world's first genomic health record system. So they have so many tools for genetic professionals and specifically genetic counselors to help with the genetics workflow. I think many of us that work in genetics know that the electronic health record system is typically not designed for genetics and genomics. And so Phenotips is really changing this by offering tools like pedigree builders, and uh, that includes symptom capture and diagnostic insights. So definitely check them out. You can go to um, phenotips.com for more information on that. And we'll give you all the links at the end of the show as well. And so in light of this pandemic, as I mentioned, Phenotips is hosting this new speaker series, and we're gonna be doing a webinar a month during this pandemic and sharing skills and being able to work towards our future in genetic medicine and keep up with conversations and being able to share all of this together. And so um, for those that are just joining us now, I'm your host, Kira Deneen. And I also host DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast and radio show. Over the last eight years, we've had 125 episodes with genetic conversations, just like we're going to have on today's webinar. And I'm also a recent graduate um, from the Sarah Lawrence College um, Human Genetics Program. And so I'm joining the field as a prenatal genetic counselor. And as I mentioned, today we're going to be talking about telehealth and genetic counseling. So 85% about of genetic counselors are now working remotely due to this pandemic. And so we're really having to quickly adapt to suddenly going from working in person in clinics and practices and hospitals and institutions to now doing it like we are here online. And so Phenotips and I thought it would be great to bring on a thought leader and expert in the field of telehealth genetics to share her experiences and best practices and her perspective of working in this for many years so as you can see, my guest here is Elizabeth Turner. And so she is a fellow genetic counselor and co-founder and chief executive officer of Advanced Telegenetic Counseling, ATGC for short. And Elizabeth's team is one of the first telegenetic companies to enter the industry. And they provide comprehensive genetic counseling services via 
telemedicine. So Elizabeth has practiced in many areas of genetic counseling, including oncology, pediatric, reproductive, general genetics, and she holds a current certification from the American Board of Genetic Counseling. So I have had such a long intro. Thank you so much for being with us and helping us launch this first episode of the Phenotip Speaker Series, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for the introduction, Karen. It's a great pleasure to be here this afternoon together. Definitely. And I love that you have your uh, panel set up behind you. It makes us really feel like we're back at a real conference in person. <laughs> One of these days we will be able to do that and it'll be a great day indeed when that happens. Yes, definitely. Well, I thought we would start out with why you started ATGC and, and get your perspective on starting the field before we get into all the great advice you have to offer for genetic counselors today. Sure. Thanks so much. Yeah. So when I, this, I think the interest in increasing access to patients started prior to my application to grad school when I was still in the shadowing phase. I've mentioned this previously, but I come from a rural area of the country where there was a definite deficit and a lack of access, which still exists today, for genetic counselors. And I was hoping that one day I would either be able to practice in my home community um, to support those patients, but even after grad school, that really wasn't an option. Um, that there just, you know, there wasn't an, um, an opening for a genetic counselor there. And so I thought, well, how we know that these patients have a great lack of access to genetic services. Um, for reference, there were about 10 patients served in the community. Um, that, it, and when I say community, I, I mean probably um, four or five counties, maybe six counties. Um, over or in the Midwest and, and they would either have to somehow their physician would either have to assign them to this outreach clinic or they would have to drive two and a half hours for care and it just didn't happen and I think still there's that deficit there and so my goal with ATGC is to help reduce those barriers to access for all patients by providing genetic counseling services that are affordable and accessible to patients no matter their distance from an in-person genetic counselor. Because it is so hard when patients don't have a place they can go to within an hour or within two hours. It, it's so hard to be able to get there and even maybe know of their services if it's not something that's local. So it's fantastic that you saw an opportunity to do this uh, so early. I think around 2016, if I'm getting that right, so about four years ago. So Yes, ATGC was founded in 2016. And so for genetic counselors that this is brand new to them, maybe they've never worked in telehealth before. Let's talk about some of the basics. What type of telehealth options are there in terms of, I mean, there seems to be quite a few options. What would you say are the main ones? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So getting down to basics, there are two primary ways that we communicate with our patients. Those are either through audio only or through audiovisual connection. Um, I think as genetic counselors, we probably always prefer that the patient has a video feed. You know, if we can't see them in person, we want to be able to read their body language and know that they're really absorbing the information. So I think we still always try or, you know, the first attempt is for the audiovisual connection. However, we do serve patients who don't have access to um, a good internet feed, a good internet connection. And so that, especially for those patient populations, telephone genetic counseling becomes very important because it may mean the difference of them receiving telephone services or no services. And so I think it's really important um, that we continue to offer both when it's possible to do so um, for patients who may have unique circumstances. 
That's a really good point that our goal would be to have the video component because that's going to be the closest thing to in-person, but knowing that we have to adapt to our different patient populations and seeing what they have access to and being able to provide to as many people as we possibly can. So I like how you phrase that of, of having both and that maybe we prefer one, but not always our preference is going to end up happening. For genetic counselors that may be in the position of their team is looking at them to figure out, okay, how do we start offering this? Especially a lot of genetic counselors uh, can sometimes be the younger professionals in the group. We are a young profession in general. What platforms are available that are HIPAA compliant? And, and I've heard that some of the HIPAA compliant has um, relaxed a little bit due to the pandemic, but what are some platforms that genetic counselors should be aware of or start looking into? Yeah, that's a great question as well. I think that even though we have a little bit of leeway right now as far as the telemedicine platforms that we use just because of the world situation at present, it's still really important to seek out those, um, for example, the audiovisual systems that do promote themselves as a HIPAA compliance system and have everything in place. Um, one tip is that if a company is able to provide you with a business associate agreement or BAA, um, that's a good first step at evaluating um, which ones might be appropriate for your practice. So I think start there. Another thing that we've noticed lately is that there are more options right now. And so it may just take a little more searching to see which one is a good fit for your practice workflow and for the current systems you have in place. You also might check with whoever provides your EMR service because frequently um, that's an addition that we're seeing being added to EMRs is the um, additional telemedicine components. So it may already be built in for your system, just something maybe to check with IT about. That's a good thing to think about. If you already have a system that you're using, there's a way just to add on to that and see what other services they offer. It might uh, be less change for the practice in general mm -hmm. to be able to be adapting because if there's, it can be a challenge to be able to have a whole new system so quickly, even though we've been through this pandemic for months now, you know, it's, it's still something that we're adapting to. When you started with telehealth, what were some of the first hurdles you experienced of just being one of the first companies and trying to figure out how this workflow works? That's a great question. So I think our initial hurdle and still one that we're, um, actively trying to figure out is how exactly does telegenetics fit into the wider industry. There are so many directions that you can go, um, you know, whether you're serving an individual patient, which probably applies to most genetic counselors who see patients coming in from their practice, or whether you're supporting um, a larger practice system, such as a health system, um, or, you know, we at one time explored working with genetic testing labs who now frequently have their own genetic counselors on staff. And so there's many directions you can take. And I think um, it's important to figure out exactly what your practice offers that others don't or what your area of focus is to help narrow down who is the best fit for what you're trying to accomplish. Um, again, for us, we're, our, our main goal is really to help patients and provider groups um, find an affordable and an effective method to see their patients who need genetic services. And so that's our area of focus, but it may be different for a different practice. Um, I think another area recently, so that was, you know, that's basically what we saw at the beginning. And, and recently it has been more, there are lots, and this probably started maybe two years ago, we just saw a huge uptick in the number of players in the field um, and not necessarily 
speaking about genetic counselors, but all of a sudden as a genetic counselor, you have, for example, all of these new genetic labs that are on the market. And they have, the, the of course, we know that there are multiple genetic tests being developed every day. And what we're beginning to realize is that not everything is created equally. And so sifting through that and figuring out how do I offer high quality services to my patient population and really working to interface with the patient's local physician group, um, because very often they may have a preference as to what direction you take with testing or what they want next steps to be. So those are hurdles um, that we're currently facing. And I think it's just the nature of the young and growing industry that we need to be aware of gen as genetic counselors that um, it, the field is not as small as it once was. And we all need to work together to figure out um, the best places to serve our patients and the best ways to do that. So really focusing on good workflow and of course creating um, good partnerships with the um, institutions that we're working with. It sounds really important to be able to collaborate with them and understand how their workflow works and how patients are experiencing that, especially if you are meeting with those same patients and being able to understand where they're coming from, just kind of like with direct consumers, many genetic counselors have done them themselves just to understand when patients come in and start talking about it, we know what they're talking about. We know what those reports look like. So it's similarities in terms of understanding what patients are experiencing and also seeing what's working for those companies that could then work for other people's practices and everything. Um, so another question I had was when transferring that you originally, when you started working in genetic counseling, you were meeting with patients in person and then, then yourself as a genetic counselor, transitioning those skills that you developed in grad school and once you started working into this telehealth platform, how were you able to do that? I mean, what skills were maybe difficult to then transition into this? I think for me personally, the biggest difference has been how I approach the session mentally. Um, and I think very much that has to do with personal preference. I was a genetic counselor who always cho chose to sit side by side with my patients um, in an effort to reduce the barriers between us. And so when you're speaking with someone on the phone, that visualization is gone. And even with a video feed such as this, um, which may be how you would interact with your patient in a virtual setting, um, you still don't have that same feeling of sitting side by side next to another human being and really listening to their story. And one of the best pieces I, of advice that I got early on was to still visualize myself sitting next to that patient to, to build that rapport um, in a virtual way. And I really find that that creates, for me, um, a sense of calmness, and, and I hope that translates to the patient as well. Um, and so we, it's just a matter, and maybe a realization, or even you know, mention the patient. I know this is if this is your first telemedicine appointment. I know this might seem unusual, um, but you know, I'm here for you. How can I help you? Um, we still want you know, we still want to give the patient the best experience that they can, and make it as close to an in-person genetic counseling session as possible for them. 
I like that being able to visualize when you were in person and we've all had experiences at least in grad school or early on of sitting with patients and having that and thinking about what conversations you have in the beginning don't necessarily just launch right into the information and maybe acknowledging that this could be their first time and first experience with telehealth, which I'm sure in a few years that will sound like such an old thing to say. <laughs> but for now, it's, it, it is definitely something that the patients are also getting used to, not just us. I think that's a really good point. And in terms of, say, genetic counselors, I'm kind of speaking of myself and there's probably others out there. I like to draw with patients. As I talk about something, I'm like, okay, I'm going to draw out what a positive is, a negative, a view as, because I'm a visual person. They're following along with me. How do you find that? doing things like that over telehealth, maybe especially in that educational portion of the session. What are some kind of strategies that you've leaned towards as you've been in doing this for years? I think that for the majority of genetic counselors on ATGC's team who choose to use visual aids, and like you said, it is a, it is a very personal preference and something that some counselors do with every session. Um, if we have an audiovisual connection, it's much easier. You can still be drawing sort of in real time and showing the patient whatever it is that you need to present to them. I think also having a good system in place for sharing reports and information with patients before and after the session for their own record keeping is very important. And so um, as long as you have a system in place that allows for you to upload that documentation to patients, Hopefully they're able to access that because as we know, it's sometimes the things that we send home with patients um, that, that will later spark a question or a reference that they, that they need to um, have for their own health. Um, and beyond that, um, I would also add that we should be sharing that information also with the patient's provider, their local provider or healthcare um, team that the patient directs us towards whenever possible. Definitely. And and looking at more tools and resources, because as genetic counselors, we're always like, where's the resources? Where do we go to to find this information? What are other tools and resources that you think are lacking in the telehealth genetic counseling space right now? What do you want to see being added to make this process easier for genetic counselors, especially the new ones that are just joining this new space? I think that tools like the ones that Phenotips and other cutting edge companies are offering are going to be really important moving forward in the genetic counseling space. Um, to expand a little bit about the things that we've experienced as a company, um, we've struggled with finding an EMR that's, that's pre-built that meets our needs because very often the EMRs that are on the market are designed for larger companies or larger hospital systems and very often um, more provider types than the average genetic counseling practice is going to need to incorporate. So for example, for us, um, we don't need to know about um, prescriptions um, and, and how to fill those prescriptions for patients. And so there's a lot of extras that could probably be taken out. And then again, putting in things that are more useful like the pedigree drawing tools um, and um, easier ways I think to interface um, in a telemedicine setting between an existing practice and maybe an outside practice would be very useful. 
Yeah, especially being able to share it with their other team, especially if you are not within a big hospital system and doing this on your own, but you're trying to provide to, you know, their OBGYN or whoever it is that's not within that same system. Um, that would certainly be something to look out for an electronic health record system because that's just going to make life much easier, much less faxing and all types of older, older methods of communication. Uh, another question that has come up that I think a lot of genetic counselors are thinking about are the genetic testing part of it. When we end a session, oftentimes now we're having patients spit into a tube in front of us or we're walking them down to phlebotomy to um, get their blood samples. So how does this look like and, and what is the, the workflow when you're meeting with a patient online like this? Um, how are you setting up and arranging for them to get genetic testing if that's something that is the next step for them? That's a great question, Kira. And luckily, I think it's becoming more commonplace for genetic testing labs to offer either mobile phlebotomy clinics, which may come and take, take the patient's blood at home, um, as well, of course, as the shipped saliva samples that the patient can do with explicit instructions that are what I, from what I've seen generally given with the test kit and in conjunction with the genetic counselor's assistance if needed um, to be able to provide the sample, package that sample and return it to the genetic testing lab. And so that's made it much easier for at-home testing to occur for patients. Um, we do also work with either individual patients or provider groups who still prefer the, for the patient to come in for that sample. And so I think just being comfortable getting on the phone and coordinating that with the, provi uh, the referring provider is a really you know, common um, component that our genetic counselors use on a daily basis to help coordinate that testing. Um, but I think more and more we are using the at-home um, option, especially with today's current climate. Certainly. And it's, it's good to know what the options are in case option A doesn't work with the patient for some reason and understanding what all the options are and seeing what's going to fit best with the patient and having that backup plan and being able to explore that. Another aspect that has um, been coming up with telehealth is students not being able to be rotating in their rotations. Um, for me personally, I got cut short of my last rotation in grad school. And so the, you know, the classes that the incoming class and um, other classes are looking at, how am I going to be fulfilling my requirements and being able to get my master's in genetic counseling? And so there are some genetic counselors that are stepping up and being able to supervise through telehealth to continue providing that service that's much needed in our community to, you know, support the next generation of genetic counselors what are some advice and tips that you have for genetic counselors that are starting to do this for the first time of being a supervisor through telehealth? So I don't think you have to put those dreams on hold if you find yourself in a telehealth position. Um, and to the point that you mentioned, there are genetic counseling students who have been displaced. Like there's some genetic counseling students who are seeking a telemedicine rotation as their primary reason. Um, for coming to ATGC, at least for that rotation. Um, but like, as you mentioned, there are also genetic counseling students who need to fulfill um, some requirements now that they may have previously thought could be fulfilled in person. And so 
we've always found it a really huge honor to be able to work with students because I think as genetic counselors ourselves, um, we realize how important those special links were to developing our own practice. Um, I just like, I'll just give a shout out to the Emory University team. It was my first summer rotation and I 100% believe that it was my experience with that phenomenal group of genetic counselors that solidified my personal love of oncology genetics and really showed me what it means to be a genetic counselor that's practicing on a daily basis. And so now um, our director of clinical genetics, who's a wonderful um, GC, but is also really great with the students, is the person on our team who sort of coordinates um, that student's role for the particular semester that they're with us and is able to work with the other GCs on our team to make sure that student gets experience with multiple types of counseling. And so it can be done from home. Um, you know, it can be done remotely. These rotations can be done remotely. And I think it's a really unique experience, um, usually for the students who haven't had a telemedicine rotation before just to see the similarities and differences between what they've experienced in, for example, hospital setting um, versus a smaller genetic counseling practice. That's remote. Certainly. <laughs> yeah, and, and there are so many like rotations where that it impacts you so much you end up going into that field or you didn't think that telehealth you know was really a good option for you and then you experience it and you're like wow actually there's so many great aspects to it and really you know change your mind which is what sounds like a little bit of your experience um in grad school and so it's great i'm so glad you're able to take students and that more genetic counselors can start doing this as we're kind of in the long haul with the pandemic to not disrupt students education as much as we can you know of having um classes online and so things are definitely shifting but um, still being able to offer that is is such a fantastic um, part of it and with the pandemic obviously telehealth is being offered much much more it's what we've been talking about throughout this this webinar how do you foresee it affecting in the long term in terms of not just while we're in the pandemic but afterwards do you see this really giving it um, a kind of jumping off point to be able to be more integrated in healthcare in general? What are your thoughts about kind of the, the future of telehealth? I think that, as we know, telehealth has been around for a number of years now, but it hasn't necessarily been widely utilized, of course, up until now. And all of a sudden, we have a situation where most of us find ourselves having to work remotely or at least as genetic counselors. Um, and so I, I believe that once those skills are established, it will be easier to continue in that trajectory. And with the number of patients just overall, not just in genetics, but in healthcare in general, who are choosing to utilize telemedicine, I hope that it will continue to be a viable option for patients who for whatever reason, whether it be geographic distance or because um, perhaps they're immunocompromised or whatever the case may be, to be able to still access services or actually to increase their access to services to get the answers that they need. Um, and so it is my hope that telemedicine will continue to be used, you know, indefinitely as, as an option that 
not, and, and of course, it's not always the um, best option for patients, but in something like genetics, it, it very frequently can be. Um, so I hope that we'll continue to utilize these types of services for the benefit of patients, um, you know, into the future. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point that people may not think of right away that telehealth may be actually the best option for some patients, that maybe it's very hard to coordinate getting to the clinic, to physically get there and maybe get a ride and coordinate schedule um, to be able to really organize all of that. And if you're immune compromised of not going out into public, especially during this time, and that there are a lot of situations where it sounds like patients really not only prefer, but it's, it's better for them. Are there other examples of how, of patients that may have a better experience with telehealth through your experience? I think that you touched on a lot of the really important and some of the primary reasons we think of, of why patients wouldn't have access to genetics. First of all, there's a huge deficit of genetic counselors, which we know. So if a patient resides out of generally a more urban area and an established healthcare system, they are less and less likely to have received that genetics care. And they are less likely to know about that genetics care. And from, from time to time, their providers are less likely to know about that, to have the importance of that genetics care. And so I think that education is a huge part of um, increasing genetics knowledge for patients, for all patients. And hopefully over time, as genetics becomes more commonplace as part of the overall health picture um, that someone um, gets about their own health and, and their health risks, um, that we will continue to be able to reach more and more patients. Um, I think some additional barriers are not necessarily geographic. For example, there is still um, a deficit of care in urban populations that may be in close geographic proximity to a larger health system that supports genetic counselors. However, those avenues may not be open to them. They may be less likely to, for example, have been to a physician to receive care or to know how to access those genetic services. And so another portion that we'd like to really focus on is reaching those populations, um, whether they are rural or urban, um, that still have this sort of disparity in access. And I think this is an ongoing piece that ATGC is um, seeking to understand is how can we reach those patients and how can we do so in a way that's um, accessible for them, not only the virtual component, um, but as we know, as genetic counselors, insurance reimbursement is hit or miss. So how do we make this an affordable option for those um, patients who uh, need a little extra support in that area? Certainly. And that really brings us full circle of how we started, of you starting ATGC as seeing within your own hometown community of how difficult it was for people to get genetic counseling and being able to have ATGC fill in that gap and really be helping to address this disparity and having people access genetic counseling no matter where they are, no matter um, what resources they have at home to be able to do this to be adaptable as genetic counselors. We're very good at being adaptable, but we do have to learn our new area and we're all learning this telehealth part. So 
Thank you so much. I think we are going to move on now. It's 1230. I'm right on time. Um, we're going to move on to listener questions and viewer questions here. So I'm going to open that up and we're going to see what we have here. Our first question is, um, what are some strategies to build rapport with patients via telehealth, which you talked a little bit about earlier, um, but do you have anything more to add in terms of building rapport with patients when we're going through this telehealth platform? I, th I think that, you know, we did cover that a little bit earlier, but I'll just reiterate that being open to patients and really trying to meet them where they are, whether that means an audio only or an audio visual connection and really understanding some of the pain points that that patient has to access will help you understand where they're coming from when you start the session. And then of course, from there, we just use our genetic counseling skills of um, psychosocial support for the patient, which fortunately do not change um, too much in the virtual setting. But I think just really understanding that every patient's story is unique, um, how they heard about genetic counseling, what they've learned from their physician if they've been re referred by a physician um, may be different. And so starting that counseling session again with what do you understand uh, um, about the reason that you're you know, presenting at genetics today is still holds true um, in the virtual environment. You just might get a greater um, difference in the answers that you'll receive. Certainly, yes. That is a good thing to open up a session and, and really see where they're coming from. Even when we're doing it in person, I think that that translates really well to telehealth. Um, so definitely add your questions in. I'm looking through the webinar chat, but also the Q&A. So I have both up. So feel free to submit your questions as we go through these. We're going to be doing this uh, for the next eight minutes before we move on to our networking. Um, portion. And so that check your email because it's actually going to be a different Zoom link. So we're going to answer questions until 1240 uh, when we're switching over to that. So our next question um, is with students, how do you involve them more in the day-to-day -day elements of dealing with stuff that would usually come in and be dealt with on an on-call genetic counselor? So our students work with our clinical team um, on a weekly basis and are assigned, they know their caseload for the week um, at the beginning of the week. And so they're able to prepare much like you would in a clinical setting for those patients. Um, additionally, I mean, we receive first and second year students. So the first year students, although they of course are more observational at least in the beginning stages, each genetic counselor will, will work with that um, student to figure out what the goals are for that particular session and beyond that overall for the rotation as a whole. Um, and so when it comes to extra, you know, beside, you know, the things that happen besides seeing the patient, um, very frequently if the, if the student is at a place where they're able to do so, will assist with everything from sending records to helping write the clinic note um, and all of those things that you would um, as an in-person genetic counseling student just done um, over the internet. Yeah, definitely. There's still so much to be including. It's not necessarily just the session part of all the, the extra parts of genetic counseling to fill in for. Uh, our next question is, do you know of any companies or initiatives like yours in other languages or countries? That's a great question. Um, so not personally at the current time, and I do know that the ways in which we're able to share genetic information internationally are changing, um, and that very much is a country by country basis um, for which you will 
likely, if interested, need to consult with you know, local regulatory um, experts in that area. And also um, to be aware and to be comfortable with the regulations that exist in the United States as well. So it's a little more complex. I am sure there are probably genetic counseling initiatives out there um, in the international space already. Um, and hope that that's something that we can continue to strive for and work towards and find ways to collaborate together, um, even on an international basis to help patients all over the world. Yes, definitely. Um, and our next one, I'm going to read a longer comment here. First off, thanks for the wonderful webinar. I am working to build a referral base targeting rural providers and have been running into difficulty gaining an audience. Have you found useful ways to connect with rural providers, provider groups who may not have traditionally had patient populations with easy access to genetic services to show them our value? So that's a perfect question. And I think the question that has been most ongoing for ATGC itself, because of course, as this individual mentions, we're very much interested in those similar populations too and expanding access to them and have run into a similar problem, which is very frequently that the provider doesn't know why they need genetic services. And so it's a longer process, um, which of course supports that let's get the education out there of why genetics is important. I think how that is accomplished may vary, excuse me, <clears throat> where previously we may have, you know, doing, been doing site visits um, to meet with providers in person. Of course, now today's environment requires us to be a little more creative. I think additionally with some of these rural providers, a, a challenge at the current time is that they may be either not practicing or practicing on some sort of reduced basis or in a way that they're not really necessarily comfortable with as of yet. So I think we're all in this like finding ourselves stage right now. And it definitely has been um, a difficulty that, I mean, the best advice that I can give and also something that we, as our practice, we need to work on this as well is really increasing um, the knowledge of how genetics can help a particular patient population, which may vary depending on what type of rural provider group you're speaking with, whether it's a hospital system or a smaller practice. Um, but I think I'm hopeful at least that over time, um, this will become less and less of an issue as genetics obviously becomes more and more mainstream. And I don't think any of us see that, you know, the utility of genetic counseling going anywhere. So hopefully, um, as more patients have genetic testing and as more providers become more comfortable with the idea of what genetic counseling can provide their patients, um, we will hopefully um, be able to reach more patients in, in those populations. Yeah, so it'll certainly get easier as the years go on um, of people just knowing what genetic counseling is. We don't, we're explaining it less and less. People now have heard of it and we're not uh, you know, trying to explain it's not designer babies and, and all of that information. So it's yeah. certainly getting easier. And I'm uh, sure genetic counselors, we've all had that question about your genetic counselor, what does that mean? You know, what, what do you do? And I will agree with you. Maybe it is happening a little less frequently. So we can hope that it will continue to go in that direction. Yeah, certainly. Our next question um, is, how do you navigate GC licensure requirements state by state? Are you only able to provide services to certain states at this time? And I know this is, this is quite um, extensive in terms of state licensure. How does that work? 
Yeah, it's really important to keep on top um, of which states are acquiring licensure. Um, I think that different practices will approach this in different ways. At the end of the day, it's important that if a genetic counselor on your team is providing services and that there are licensure requirements in that state, that they are licensed in that state that they are providing services. That's something that ATGC has worked really hard to incorporate into our own practice and will continue to do so, um, you know, as probably all 50 states, hopefully, um, move forward with genetic counselor licensure. And I think beyond that, how you break that up um, amongst your own team is really an individual opinion, um, as well as obviously what the genetic counselor um, is available to do. So, you know, it, it may make sense to seek licensure in all 50 states if you're providing services in all 50 states. If you're providing services in a particular state or a particular region, obviously you don't need to worry about um, states outside of that. I will say also it's important to understand um, the ordering requirements for a particular state or if there is no licensure um, to seek counsel on how and if you might be able to order genetic testing for patients as a genetic counselor um, because that does vary and it does get quite complex. Certainly. Well, that's all the time we have for questions today. So thank you everyone for tuning in. Elizabeth, thank you so much for providing so much insight into telehealth. We're all trying to figure this out and we really appreciate you being a guide in this new field of genetic counseling. And so we're going to move on to our networking part. Um, as people are exiting and checking your email uh, to find that link for the different Zoom meetings, they're going to leave this and go to a different one. Um, I do want to say that you can follow Elizabeth Turner and ATGC on social media by searching Advanced Telegenetic Counseling. If you'd like to follow me, you can search DNA Today, all social media platforms. And certainly follow, follow Phenotips on social media for more updates on future installments of Phenotips speaker series. We have another session in August, so definitely stay tuned for that. And thank you again, Elizabeth, for coming on and launching this new Phenotips speaker series. We so appreciate it, and we hope that everyone got to learn so much today about telehealth. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Thanks, Kira. It's been super fun, and thanks for including me on this.